0: This morning, I wanna preach to you again about trusting in God. Over the past month, we have been looking at the series In God We Trust, and in each message, we've been looking at a different season or a different snapshot in Elijah's life. Up to this point, as we've gone through 1 Kings 17 and 18, at every turn, we see Elijah as this great prophet of God doing the same thing over and over again. Even when it's difficult, even when it's hard, even when it could cost him his life, he hears from God or he seeks God and he gets God's direction. And then even at great cost, he surrenders to God's will and he willingly obeys, even when his life is on the line. But in 1 Kings 19, we are reminded loud and clear Though a man of God, Elijah was still just a man. The Bible tells us in James chapter 5 something about interesting about Elijah. It literally says that Elijah was a man with like nature as ours, which means even though he was called of God and was a man of great profound faith and was a man who honored God in so many ways, he still had a nature, a nature just like us. He experienced strengths and weaknesses, joys and sorrows. He experienced great passions and great disappointments along the way. He experienced it all. He had a nature like ours. As we study his life in 1 Kings 19, we see loud and clear, as the old adage says, the best of men are but men at their best. The best of men are but men at their best. And what that means is simply this. It's a reminder that all men... All of us, male or female, we've all sinned against God. We've all fallen short of his glory. We all have messed up along the way. We all need God's grace and mercy in our life. See, it's easy when you're looking at a prophet of God like Elijah. It's easy when maybe you're looking at a a pastor or a, a leader of some sort. It's easy to put them on a pedestal of praise that they were never intended to be on. If you want to watch my life long enough, I hope that I will live my life in such a way that honors the Lord Jesus Christ and represents him to the world. And I pray and I strive to live my life in such a way that I could look at you as our family of believers and I could say, follow me as I follow Christ. But the harder you look at me, the closer you examine, you'll quickly find that we have something in common. And that is that we are all humans. We've all fallen short of God's grace. We all need his mercy in our life. Perhaps nowhere is Elijah's humanity more evident than in this moment in 1 Kings chapter 19. Here this great prophet of God finds himself in a very dark place. But here's what I want you to see this morning. Even in the dark places of life, God is still there. I don't know what place you're in today. I don't know if you're in a place of great joy or great sorrow, of great delight or great despair. But I do know this, that God will meet you there. 1 Kings chapter 19, I want us to look this morning at the reality of trusting God's presence. If you're physically able, would you stand to your feet for the reading of God's word? The Bible says this, beginning in verse 1. Now, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. In other words, she gave him a death sentence. Within 24 hours, his life would be gone. Verse 3, how did he respond? And he was, say it with me, afraid. And he arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he, what's the next word? Himself, went a day's journey into the wilderness. And he came and sat down under a juniper tree. Listen to this request. And he requested for himself that he might die. And said, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life. For I am not better than my fathers. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, Elijah, rise and eat. He looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and he drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time, touched him and said, arise and eat, Elijah, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and he ate and he drank, went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Verse 9. Then he came there to a cave, and he lodged there. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. Key statement, and I am left alone. They seek my life to take it away, verse 11. So he said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire a sound of a gentle blowing wind. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle, went out and stood in the entrance of the cave, and behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said again, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars, they've killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left. You hear this word alone a lot. They seek my light to take it away. The Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you've arrived, you shall anoint Hazael, king over Aram. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, over Abel, Mahola, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. Skip down to verse 18. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, and all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you this morning for your love for us. I thank you, God, that even in our dark times, you make us aware of your presence to shed light in the midst of the darkness, to give hope in the midst of hopelessness. And so, God, I pray today that you would speak your word of truth into each of our lives, that we would be transformed, that we would be saved, but we would also be delivered from the dark despair that Elijah himself found himself in. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated this morning. This morning, I want to preach on the subject, trusting God's presence. Trusting God's presence. We speak of the word presence. It can be easy at times to misunderstand what's being spoken of. I'm reminded of the illustration of a little girl one day. She was so excited because her mother had invited her that day to come into big church. I met some children after the first service today that were the first time ever they were in big church with the adults, the big people of the church. But this little girl was so excited and so she, she went into the worship service and she sang the songs and she listened to all that was going on and she finally sat down and she listened to the announcements and she listened to the pastor's message and then finally the pastor began to close the service in prayer. And as the pastor closed in prayer, he said, Lord, I thank you for your presence here today. Thank you for your presence and the way that you have worked among us today. We thank you. And he kept saying the word, we thank you for your presence. Finally, he closed his prayer and said, amen. And by the time he said, amen, that little girl was so excited. Her face was filled with joy. She began to shake. She couldn't sit still. And finally, her mother looked over at her and said, honey, what has gotten into you? Why are you so excited? She said, mommy, didn't you hear it? The pastor said that Jesus is bringing us presents. Of course, what she misunderstood was the fact that when the Bible's speaking of God's presence in this context, it's speaking about God's dwelling. It's speaking about him being with us and meeting us in this place. In 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah is in a season where frankly he thought he could run from the presence of the Lord. But even in the midst of his dark time, he would find that God was right there with him. David said it this way in Psalm 139 verses seven and following, he said this, Where, Lord, can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? For if I ascend to heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness, O Lord, is not too dark for you. And the night is as bright as the day and darkness and light are alike to you. What David said in that moment was simply this, whether I'm in the dark or whether I'm in the light, whether I'm in the mountain or whether I'm in the valley, the Lord is with me and he will take care of me. Elijah's in this moment in 1 Kings chapter 19 where he was going to learn this lesson firsthand in a powerful way. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat it. The Bible doesn't dismiss it. We see a very sobering reality in Elijah's life. The prophet of God gets to such a low place, such a dark moment, that he would find himself under a juniper tree, and he'd look to God and he'd say, enough. I've had enough. God, I can't take anything else. God, I can't take another step. God, I'm overwhelmed. God, would you take my life? I wonder this morning if you've ever been in such a dark place. Have you ever been in a place where you felt so overwhelmed with, with grief and so overwhelmed with sorrow, maybe so overwhelmed with sin, so overwhelmed with the sin that's been done against you? Have you ever been in that place where you're so overwhelmed, where frankly the only thing you saw the opportunity to do was to throw in the towel, to give up, you'd had enough, you couldn't move on any forward, any further? That's exactly where Elijah's at. Maybe it comes as a shock to you to hear that one of the most dynamic men of God that the Bible records in the life of Elijah would get to such a low place. Maybe we would reason our minds, how is that possible? How can a prophet of God get to such a dark place where he would beg God to take his life? The fact of the matter is when you study Scripture, though, you quickly learn that Elijah was not alone. Moses Samson, Solomon, Job, Jonah, even the Apostle Paul reached the point in their life where there was such despair and such hurt and such heartache that they didn't know how to move forward. Some of you say, oh, well, that's because they're men. Well, even Rebecca experienced the same. Pastor, what are you saying? What I'm saying to you is this. We are all sinners in need of God's grace, his mercy, and his help. While none of us want to get to this place, all of us can get to this place. And so what I want us to see this morning as we study God's word in the life of Elijah here in 1 Kings 19 is I want us to make two key observations. The first is I want us to see the steps that led Elijah to this low point. But then I want us to see what God did to deliver him from this place. It's important for us to identify the steps or else we will be completely ignorant of the enemy's schemes. And God doesn't want us to be ignorant of the enemy's schemes. But it's also important for us to know where to look and how to who to turn to, how we respond in that moment. First Kings 19, I want you to see two things primarily. The first thing is I want you to see man's pit of despair. Man's pit of despair. The word despair is not a nice flowery word, right? There's nothing beautiful or even poetic really about that word. The word despair literally means to lose all hope or confidence, not where you want to be. I'm calling it a pit, though, because a pit is, is, is kind of, it's, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's the idea of a, of a place that doesn't want to release you and let you go. John Bunyan, in his book, Pilgr- in his writing, Pilgrim's Progress, he called it a slough or a slough of despond, however, you want to pronounce that word. That word slough literally means a swamp of despond. Well, it's interesting if you've ever been around a swamp, if you've ever, for illustration, waded in a muddy river, you know when you are out in the deep, things are fine. But when you come into the shallow and you get to that muddy base of that river, guess what happens? It tries to keep you in it. Last week, we had our baptisms and appropriately, many people who were being baptized came in their flip-flops. And our pastors had to explain, um, before you get into the water, you need to take off your flip-flops. Why? Because as you are stepping into that muddy edges of the river, guess what happens? I can't describe how exactly it exactly happens, but it creates a suction underneath it. It literally will kind of suck your feet in. It will, if you will, swallow up your flip-flop. It wants to make you stuck in the mud, so to speak. And, and what the Bible's showing us here is that despair and depression is like that pit. It's like that swamp that tries to keep your feet weighted down so that you can't get out, so that you can't be delivered. Elijah was in a pit of Despair. Well, how did he get there? Five steps I want us to see, and I'll try to bring them out quickly as I can, but five things that I want us to see. Number one, there was a crisis. Elijah experienced a crisis. I've never met anyone who reached a place of despair or depression who envisioned or thought they would ever get there. In fact, they normally come to a place of question and they begin to wonder. How did I get here? Or why am I here? How did this happen? It's almost like it seems to blindside them all of a sudden. But in this case, we see that one of the first steps towards that is a crisis. In Elijah's case, Elijah's been serving God. Elijah has been faithful to what God called him to do. Elijah has been bold in what God called him to do. He has literally lived by faith. He's put his life on the line. He's just experienced on Mount Carmel that the people of God have bowed to worship God and they've said, the Lord, he is God. And I'm sure in this moment, Elijah anticipated that because of his obedience and because of his faithfulness, there would be blessing and that God would be looking out for him. But the very next thing the Bible tells us is this. Jezebel put a death warrant out on his life. 24 hours, she said. In 24 hours, I will make you as one of the prophets of Baal. You will be destroyed. You will be gone. And the Bible tells us there suddenly is a crisis. Now, for us today, sometimes it's hard to diagnose a crisis because we see them very differently. What may seem to be a crisis to you may not seem to be a crisis to me. And what may be a crisis in my life, you might look at it and say, are you serious? It's kind of like in some ways a paper cut. If I were to have a paper cut today, I really wouldn't think a whole lot of it, other than the fact that it would probably annoy me for a while. But you have someone who's on blood thinners with serious health problems, and they have a paper cut, it's a totally different experience. See what I'm saying? When we face a crisis, we have different perspectives of those things, and there's all sorts of crises that we can have in our life. It could be the death of a loved one. It could be the betrayal of a friend. It could be the abandonment of a spouse. It could be words that wounded deeply. It could be a lie that someone told you or lived before you. All those things can put you in a place of crisis. It could be a job loss, financial loss. It could be a, a loss of hope in some area of your life. It could be a physical crisis, a serious diagnosis. A traumatic experience, a car accident that leaves you completely altered in the process of life. What I'm saying to you this morning, there's all sorts of things that can bring us to a place of crisis, and sometimes they even make it even more challenging. It's not just a one time event, it's a series of crises that come. Like a one, two, three punch that pops you in the chest and leaves you without breath. A series of events. Professional Crisis Center defined it this way. Crisis is a state of feeling. It is an internal experience of confusion and anxiety to the degree that, listen, formerly successful coping mechanisms they fail us and ineffective decisions and behaviors take their place. As a result, the person in crisis may feel confused, vulnerable, anxious, afraid, angry, guilty, hopeless, and helpless. Perceptions then are often altered and memory can be distorted. Doesn't that explain a lot about what Elijah's facing? Ahab has left Mount Carmel. He's gone home to wicked Jezebel. When he gets there, she's waiting for him. And she's like, tell me what happened at Mount Carmel. Tell me how, how Baal answered the people's prayer. Tell me what took place. And Ahab has to look at her and say, honey, that's not what happened. What happened is all the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, they were praying to the God Baal and they prayed day, I mean, like hour after hour. They were jumping on the altar. They were cutting themselves to get his attention and he never heard, he never answered. I mean, I'm telling you that he never responded at all. And then Elijah, the prophet of God, he came over here to the altar. He built it up. He prepared the ox. He had 12 barrels of water put on it and he prayed to his God and fire immediately fell from heaven. Not only that, Jezebel, all the people around except for the prophets of Baal, they all bowed to worship and announced that Yahweh, the Lord, he is the true and living God. And the false prophets of Baal, that day, that very moment, God judged them. He had them destroyed. They are no more. Jezebel heard. Elijah made a laughingstock of Baal. Elijah destroyed my favorite false prophets of Baal. He's gonna suffer the consequences. I'll have him killed. In this moment, Elijah is in a time of crisis. But in this crisis, I want you to see how he responded. Second thing I want you to see of this step. Please understand these steps towards depression or despair do not stand alone. They destructively build upon one another to ultimately accomplish the enemy's goal. Notice what happens. The Bible says in verse three, and he was afraid. Now we would hear that today and we would think, oh, the common logical response is that. I'm sure if someone said to you, you got 24 hours to live and I'm taking you out, I imagine you're probably gonna have a little anxiety about you. Elijah was afraid. But I'm reading this and I'm sitting here for a moment thinking, wait a second, time out, Elijah. You haven't been afraid yet. I mean, go back and read 1 Kings 17 and 18, and you'll find literally three different times that God called Elijah to do something that seemed crazy, it seemed extraordinary, it seemed literally that it would probably cost him his life. He goes and confronts Ahab, then he goes to to a Gentile region that was led by Jezebel's father, and then he goes and confronts Ahab again, and you're reading, and I'm like, man, this guy's got some boldness, he's got some courage, he's got some conviction, he is standing strong for God. But Jezebel speaks... And he's running like a scared chicken. What's the deal? How did he get to this place of fear? I mean, from a distance, looking into Elijah's life, I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, what are you doing? Hasn't God shown his faithfulness in your life? I mean, Elijah, don't you remember how, how, how in the midst of a drought, God took you to the brook Cherith and over a year, he provided for you food and meals twice a day and he provided water. Don't you remember how God provided for you? Elijah don't you remember how when the brook dried up God took you to Zarephath and a widow there God provided every day by putting flour and oil in the cupboard and he took care of you don't you remember that Elijah don't you remember when the lady's son died you prayed from heaven you prayed to heaven and God from heaven revived the child and he gave life to don't you remember that Elijah don't you remember at Mount Carmel you prayed to God and God sent fire from heaven The fact of the matter is is that his fear was not based on a lack of God's power and presence. His fear was based upon the fact that he was now walking by sight and not by faith. What's happening in this moment, and something interesting, is that every other time you see Elijah's life, we see him being sensitive to the Lord's leading, we see him seeking God's will, and then we see him acting in faith. But in this moment, he didn't take time to seek God. He didn't take time to say, God, what would you have me to do? He didn't take time to say, God, where are you in the midst of this? He didn't take time in the midst of that. And as a result of that, he began to walk by sight. And in walking by sight, it led him to walk in fear. We must always remember that we are continually tempted to walk by sight and not by faith. And the end result will always be fear. Oh, not me, pastor. I'm not going to walk in fear. Friend, I want to tell you this morning, we are all capable of walking in Elijah's footsteps. All of us. But I want to encourage you when those times come, that bring fear. When you get the report from the doctor that it doesn't look good. When you get the news that that loved one is gone. When you find out that your employment is over. When you find out and you find yourself in a situation where it seems that there is no hope. I want to remind you this morning that the same God who was God in the mountain is still God in the valley. The same God that brought you to the light, he's still God in the darkness. Isaiah 41 says it this way. God says, do not fear for I am with you. Don't anxious to look about you for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Or Jesus said it this way in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Listen to this statement. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Don't let your heart be fearful. In other words, the only power that Satan has to cause fear is the power that we give to him. So instead, let's resist him by putting on the armor of God and standing firm in our faith, according to Ephesians 6. There's a third step, isn't there? It goes from crisis to fear to a very subtle step but man, one that can be brutal. It's the step of isolation. Step of isolation. So often, when someone's struggling, we tend by nature to isolate and separate. Maybe we're ashamed of what someone will find out. Maybe we're ashamed of what we've done. Maybe we're afraid that no one will accept us or like us anymore. But for whatever reason, we isolate. Here's Elijah. Elijah gets the word that Jezebel wants to kill him. She's literally declared within 24 hours he'll be gone. And the Bible says he takes off running. Now, he's fleeing for his life, but little does he know, because he hadn't stopped to seek the Lord, he's also running completely ahead of the Lord. The Bible tells us he goes to a region that literally Beersheba was 90 miles away. Now, let me ask you a question. When was the last time you took a 90-mile journey by foot? i am just tell you, it's not something I'm planning to do any day soon or in my lifetime for that matter, okay, just to be honest about it. A 90-mile journey away from the crowd, away from the people of Mount Carmel, away from Ahab and Jezebel, away from everybody, 90 days, a 90-mile 90, 90 journey, and then he gets to Beersheba, he has a servant with him, and he tells a servant, you stay behind, I'm going into the wilderness. He goes into the wilderness a whole day's journey. In other words, the guy wants to be alone. If somebody gets up and runs 90 miles They want to be alone, okay? That's where he's at. He wants to be alone. He thinks this is what he needs. He thinks this is what he's best because he's functioning on his reasoning. But please understand this. While there are times that we need to separate from the crowd to be alone with the Lord and relate to him, there are also times that the last thing we need is to be alone because it is often these seasons of isolation and separation that provides frankly a playground for de- for, the, for the devil to work in our life it provides us it puts us in a place of weakness and vulnerability where we are completely given into all the lies of the enemy here is elijah in first kings 19 and he literally is running as far as he can and the scripture says in verse 4 that literally he himself when a day's journey. He's getting alone away from everything. Please understand, all of God's servants are likely to do foolish things when they run away from God's will. When we begin to walk by sight and depend upon self, we are all destined for failure. Here he is. His story in some way reminds me of the weakness and the vulnerable, vulnerability of Eve and of Samson and of David and others when they were isolated and alone. This could have been a great time for Elijah to be at Mount Carmel ministering to all the people that have just declared that Yahweh is God. This would have been a great time for him to be further in the work of the Lord, but instead he's running away alone. I want to remind us this morning that many of us, we think we can do life, whatever the situation or circumstance, on our own, but ultimately that's a lie from the devil. We need each other. We've seen that in a very clear way through the process of this pandemic and the quarantines and all the distancing that's taking place while that's been necessary for a season and while that's been needed for various reasons related to people's health and concerns, please understand that it's also had some very devastating effects in other areas of life. When you look at substance abuse issues in our culture, they are at an all-time high right now. I can tell you as a pastor, when you're talking about counseling situations and needs and relationships in crisis, I've never seen it the way that it is right now. I've only been pastoring 17 years, but nonetheless, I've never seen it the way that it is right now. Why is that? Because the enemy's on the prowl seeking someone to devour. He's a thief who comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. And when we get isolated, when we get separated from our brothers and sisters in Christ who support us and sharpen us and strengthen us, we become easy prey for the enemy's attacks. Hebrews 10 reminds us of our calling as believers. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's a fourth step. We're from isolation and separation to finally forth to weariness. Notice what the scripture says. The Bible tells us that Elijah came to a juniper tree. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us today because we say, oh, I don't even know what kind of tree that is. The only equivalent we have in our culture today would be like a, like a weeping willow tree. Anybody ever seen those beautiful trees on the banks of a river or something? This was a tree that grew in the wilderness. It had these, these kind of like large bending branches that would flower and blossom, and they provided almost like a tunnel effect. Considering the situation, please understand what these were normally used for shepherds who were leading their sheep from one path to another, from one one field to another, so to speak, they would often bring their flocks to rest and provide shade under the juniper tree, which is a powerful picture when you consider what God's about to do in Elijah's life. So that's what a juniper tree is. When the Bible says he gets there in verse 4, he gets there in verse 4 and the Bible says he came and he sat down under the juniper tree. The word for sat here literally means he cast himself down. You get the picture here of a guy who is just absolutely physically, mentally, emotionally exhausted. Now, we don't know how long it took him to go these 90 miles or even a day's journey in the wilderness, but here's what we have a picture of. We have a picture of a guy who's just done. He's completely spent. He comes with this juniper tree and he casts himself under the shadow of this tree, under the shade of this tree. He casts himself completely. It's like he's waving the white flag. God, I'm done. I'm exhausted. I'm weary. I can't go forward. I don't have a reason to keep fighting. I've been serving you and all it's gotten me is a death sentence. I can't do it anymore. That's so where he's at? It's interesting of that word cast. I don't know if you've ever studied this before, but have you ever heard of a cast sheep? A cast sheep is not a sheep with a cast on its leg, okay? That's not what you do. A cast sheep can happen to any sheep, but it especially happens to, to ewes that are pregnant and frankly, sheep that can get to unhealthy places. Sheep, of course, have wool. Amen, little guy. Sheep have wool, and as a result of that, as they're laying around and getting up and doing, it's easy for them to get debris and to get mess and various things caught up in their wool. And a cash sheep, in, in weariness, can literally lay down. Normal, healthy thing to do. But... Because of all the weight attacking to their wool, the the longer they lay there, gases can begin to build up in their abdomen and their center of gravity gets off, like their balance gets off. And as a result of that, they become cast, which means they will lay there as the gases are building up, as the things are weighing down their wool, they will lay there literally, and they will not get up ever. You you can bring them, as a shepherd, I've got sheep in my backyard, you can bring them food, you can bring them water, you can talk to them, you can encourage them, but you can't make them get up. They can't do it on their own. They are a cast sheep, and unless the shepherd does something very intentional, that sheep will lay there and die. Elijah was like a cast sheep, completely weary and exhausted, weighed down. And as a result of that, his weariness led him to a final thing, and that is this, it led him to wrong thinking. Wrong thinking. Or as some counselors call it, stinking thinking. That's what it led him to. I'm asking you a question. You ever had any stinking thinking that you struggle with? You say, Pastor, what are you talking about? That sounds like a potty word. I can't believe you'd say that in the pulpit. Stinking thinking. Stinking thinking is when you begin to believe the lies that are running through your head, and that's what you begin to dwell on. Here's Elijah. Where do we see this? We see this. In verse 4, Elijah cries out, oh, God, take my life. But listen to the next statement. Why? For I am not better than my fathers. What? Time out, Elijah. Who said anything about comparisons? What in the world does your father and your grandfather have to do with this moment? I mean I mean, really, how did you get this idea, Elijah? Oh God, go ahead and take my life because I, I'm not as good as my father. I'm not as good as my grandfather, and I've just been a disappointment. You know what's happening in this moment? Elijah, in crisis, has turned to fear. He's isolated himself from everything else. He's become exhausted and weary, and now he's left with his own thoughts, which, by the way, the Bible tells us that the enemy, Satan himself, he is the adversary. He's the accuser of the brethren. He is the one. He's the father of lies, for there's no truth in him, Jesus said in John chapter 8. He's filling Elijah's mind with all sorts of lies. Elijah, look what God did to you. You've been serving God, and look at the result of this. God, you've got a death sentence on your life right now. Oh, God, yeah, he provided for you back then, but he just did that because he knew he was gonna take you out by Jezebel. That was his plan. Elijah, look at all this stuff that's going on. There's no way you're gonna make it. Elijah, you're a failure. Uh, Yeah, all those people bowed to worship God, but you should have stayed there. You should have served here. You should have done that. You should have built a big following for God. Elijah, look at all the time you've wasted. Elijah, you're a failure. Boy, if your father and grandfather could see you now, they'd be such a shame. What's happening is Elijah is listening to the stinking thinking and the lies that the enemy's putting in his head, and he's coming to a false conclusion that the only way to be relieved, the best thing for himself and for everybody else, would just be for God to take him home. That's where he's at. He's in a pit of despair. Maybe you've never been in that place before. Maybe you have. Maybe you're there today. I don't know. But I do know this. No matter how deep and how dark the pit, God will meet you there. I want you to see the second thing of this text, and that is this. We see God's power to deliver. I don't have a ton of time to explain the details of it. I'll go through it as quickly as I can, but I do want to say this loud and clear God will meet you there. The same God who sent his son Jesus to pay the penalty of your sin so that you and I could be saved and set free is the same God who meets us in the place of our sorrow and meets us in the place of our darkness to show us his love and his care and his compassion and his power to deliver us and set us free. Elijah's in a place like a cast sheep where there's absolutely nothing he can do to save himself. He can't just snap out of it, he can't just change his mind and perspective. He's in a completely hopeless state. You know that analogy of the shepherd and the cast sheep? Do you remember Psalm 23? Where David says these simple words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want." He makes me to lie ground down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. What does he say next? He restores my soul. That word restore is a word used specifically in reference to how a shepherd ministers to a cast sheep. This isn't glamorous. This isn't fancy. This isn't like cool 2020 lingo. But let me illustrate what that means. Having grown up in Alabama where we had some sheep and having a few sheep in the backyard right now, here's what you do when a sheep gets cast. First off, in order for the shepherd to even be aware of it, he has to be watchful over the needs of the sheep. But then, secondly, when the sheep gets cast, there's really only two things the shepherd can do, but he must do it. The shepherd will go to that sheep and he can't offer food to get it to stand up. He can't offer water. Here's literally what he does. He has to stand over that sheep and he will put his arms down and he'll grab that sheep by the wool and he literally will pick that sheep up. The sheep can't stand on its own. It's completely imbalanced. It's completely unhealthy in this moment. He has to pick it up by the wool and literally that shepherd will pick it up and will hold it for a few minutes, two minutes, three minutes, 15 minutes, however long it's needed. And what's happening is this. When the shepherd lifts that sheep up, literally its blood flow is getting back into its legs. The gases within its abdomen begin to neutralize out. Sometimes the shepherd has to massage the limbs to get everything going. But within a period of time, 15, 20 minutes or whatever, finally that sheep begins to move forward again. What I'm saying to you is that the sheep cannot move forward Without the care and lifting of the shepherd. There's a powerful picture coming. God sent a messenger to minister to him. In this case, God literally sent an angel to minister to him. In other words, guess what? God knew right where Elijah was. I don't know where you're at today, I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know what major public pains you're dealing with or what major private issues you're dealing with, but I do know this. God knows right where you are. He knows right where you are. In this case, God sent Elijah a messenger by the way of the angel, and the Bible says that literally he woke up Elijah and he said, take and eat. You gotta eat something. He had baked a a bread cake and he had some water there, and then Elijah slept again and he did it again, and then the angel said, God wants you to go to the Mount Horeb. God sent a messenger. Please understand this morning, God was speaking through an angel in that moment, but I want to remind every single one of us today, can God speak through an angel today? Absolutely. God's not limited to my, my box or yours, but what I want to say is this, more times than not, the messengers that God sends are you and me. God put somebody on your heart today, what should you do? You should reach out to them immediately. Oftentimes, the messengers that God sends our way, we think, well, it's got to be the pastor, it's got to be that deacon or whatever else, but, and that might be wonderful, but the bottom line is more times than not, it's the neighbor across the street, it's the coworker in the next room, it's the, it's the random parent from the soccer team I used to coach that randomly shows up with a word of encouragement. Sometimes God moves in incredible ways, but God sends a messenger in those times of need. Secondly, I want you to see this, God met him in his time of need. Not only did God send a messenger, but God personally met Elijah in his time of need. The message of the angel was go to Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb was also called Mount Sinai. It was there at Mount Sinai that God established a covenant relationship with Israel. It was there at Mount Sinai that God had given them the 10 commandments. It was there at Mount Sinai in Exodus 33 that God passed by Moses and Moses saw God with his own eyes. It's in this moment that God looks at Elijah and says to the angel, go to Mount Horeb. Elijah goes to Mount Horeb, but we see pretty quickly he's still living in fear because as soon as he gets to the mountain, he goes and hides in a cave. God, why am I here? Somebody's going to kill me. Everybody's looking for me. God, how's this going to happen? Why am I here? He hides in a cave, and the voice of the Lord comes to him. Elijah, I want you to see me. Elijah, I want you to learn something about me. Elijah, I want you to have a fresh vision of who I am. See, see, as long as Elijah was wallowing in fear, in isolation, in misery, as long as he was wallowing in that, God, I'm all alone, it's just me, there's nobody else. As long as he was there, he would never move forward with God. But God wanted him to bring him out of that. The Bible tells us that there was a great wind there was a great wind, but God wasn't in the wind. There was a great earthquake, but God wasn't in the earthquake. There was fire, but God wasn't in the fire. And then the gentle, small voice. And Elijah knew it was the voice of the Lord. Elijah closed, covered his face with his mantle and he walked outside to meet with the Lord. he said, Pastor, what's God doing? God's doing in this moment is this. Warren Wiersbe says it best. All that is needed to get renewed for service is a fresh vision of the power and glory of God. As long as Elijah was focused on himself, he would never be fit for service. But in getting his focus on the Lord, he was ready for the next step. Third thing I want you to see is this. God gave him a mission. God gave him a mission. Please understand, I imagine we don't like the difficult and dark times, but there are some things that God will only reveal through those difficult and dark times. In Elijah's case, here's what God did. He got Elijah to a place we're at Elijah's undivided attention. And here's what he said. Elijah, I'm not done with you. Elijah, I still have a purpose for your life. Elijah, I still have a mission for you to accomplish. Elijah, I still have a plan. Here's what it is. There are two kings who need to be appointed and there's one prophet to be ordained, and they can't move forward into my calling and plans for them. My purpose will not be established amongst my people until you are faithful to do what I've called you to do. What I want you to see is this there in that place of misery and despair, God revealed himself to Elijah, and he gave him an absolute crystal clear picture of his next steps. Pastor Water, what are you saying? Here's what I'm saying to you. None of us like those dark times. But if we are sensitive to the Lord's leading, he will meet us in that time. And there are things that he will reveal about himself and about his purposes for our life that we would have never known otherwise. He gave Elijah a mission. As long as Elijah stayed wallowed in sorrow and misery under the juniper tree, he would never again be affected for the Lord. As long as he is paralyzed by fear, reliving the incredible crisis, isolating from others, he could have never gone forward. But in this moment, he understands God's purpose and God's mission, and he's willing to go, which brings me to the final point, and that is this. God comforted Elijah in a personal way. You remember Elijah runs away by himself to get away from everybody, God asked him twice, Elijah, why are you here? And twice, Elijah says, I'm all alone. God, I'm the last one standing for you. God, I'm the last messenger for you. I'm all alone. And God tells him in verse 18, no, I know you don't see it all, Elijah. I know you don't understand it all. But Elijah, I want you to know something. There are 7,000 people in Israel who have not bowed a knee to Baal. Your work is not in vain. My name is still great and greatly to be praised. It comforted Elijah for Elijah to know that God's will and God's way was best and that he was not alone. Second Corinthians chapter 1 says this. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking, Pastor, what's the point of all of this? Here's the point. Whatever your hurt... Whatever your struggle, whatever's causing such a feeling of fear and despair, whatever's causing you to separate and isolate from others, whatever's causing you to be completely exhausted, whatever's bringing about the wrong thinking in your mind, I want you to know this morning that God can comfort you. God can set you free. And he can give you a peace that comes only through Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that Jesus came and died on the cross for all of our sins and rose again so that all who believe in him will be saved. The Bible also tells us in Isaiah 53 that it would be by his very stripes, Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross, that we would be healed. There's some of us today listening online or in the CLC or here in this room. Frankly, we need to be healed. Second Corinthians chapter one, Paul said it this way: "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. Aren't you thankful He doesn't give us what we deserve? And the God of all comfort, He comforts us in all of our afflictions, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction." with the same comfort, comfort that we've received. Verse five, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through who? Through Christ. See, the point with Elijah was that Elijah was not gonna get well on his own. Elijah wasn't gonna get well by trying to do a bunch of good works. No, the only way Elijah was gonna get well was by drawing near to God. For us today, I want to encourage you to be reminded that we can be made well. We can be healed. It's called trusting God's presence because Elijah thought he could run from God. And he he thought that God wouldn't know where he was, but God knew all along. And when God met him in his point of need, God revealed himself in a powerful way. My prayer for each of us today is that God will reveal himself in a personal and powerful way all over the building. Will you bow your heads to me for a moment? Father, I pray that very thing that you would reveal yourself in each of our lives in a personal and powerful way. Lord, none of us want to be in a place of despair and yet, God, I'm so thankful. I'm so very thankful that even in that place, you meet us there. And as we surrender to you and trust you, you deliver us and set us free. God, we learn that loud and clear from Elijah's life. God, I thank you in my own life. When I was in that place of despair, I thank you that you met me. I thank you that you ministered to me. And there you gave me a clearer picture of your calling and your plans for my life. God, I thank you for that. And Lord, what you've done in my heart and life, I pray you do the same in the lives of others today, especially those who are struggling. God, may today be the day that we we don't proudly sit in silence, but instead that we humbly bow before you and cry out for you. I pray in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.